We can think of insight as the process of opening a door in the mind. Not that psychedelic one. You have to go to a different retreat for that. (laughs) But the, the Dharma door, what we sometimes call the Dharma eye, which leads from our familiar realm of delusion, confusion, suffering, into maybe a less familiar realm of wisdom, compassion, equanimity. And unfortunately, there's not um, yet a passcode that we can give you for that door. So we each have to do the work, as we've been saying, of opening that door for ourselves. We each have to solve our own problem in this arena. But if we think about the process of getting through a locked door, like maybe the ones on our rooms here, what do we have to do? Well, we have to unlock the door with the key. We have to unlatch the door by turning the knob. And then we have to push. And we have to do all three of those things uh, in the right order, in the right way, in order to actually get through the door. So we can put the key in the lock and turn it, unlock it. And then, uh, but if we don't also turn the the handle and push, we're going to be standing in front of that door for a very long time, waiting for it to open. Or if we push and push and push on the door until we're blue in the face, if we haven't unlocked it, it's also going to be quite some time before we get into the room. So the door of the Dharma is also like this. We need a, a variety of tools that we need to use in harmony, in concert, in order to actually get through to the, the room of insight, of wisdom, of compassion. And traditionally it's said in the teaching on the Eightfold Path, as, as the meditative portion of the path, that we need three ingredients to get, into the, get through the wisdom door, get through the Dharma door. Uh, which, of course, we need all of the Eightfold Path. That's why there's eight folds, <laughs> eight spokes to it. So we also need the... the um, portion of the path that has to do with, with correct understanding. We need to know what we're doing here. We have to understand enough of the teachings to actually get here to take up the work. And then we also need to be living our lives in a way that's in harmony with our overall aspiration. So our, our work and our practice outside of here has to be in harmony with what we're doing here, or it's going to be very difficult to, to launch it, to launch the inner work, the bhavana work. We need the support of all the portions of the Eightfold Path. But once we begin to um, sit down, once we get on the cushion or stand up or you know, go to our walking place with the intention to really start to discover the truth for ourselves, then it's these meditative factors that become foremost that we're working on developing. And those are skillful effort and skillful mindfulness and skillful concentration, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. Those are the main factors that we're uh, mobilizing and and cultivating through the meditative portion of our path. And just as with the the door and the key and the handle, um, they have to be applied in the right way, skillfully, in order for them to be effective. So the role of right effort is to quiet down those states of mind and body that make it difficult to settle in the present moment, make it difficult to pick up on what's going on in the present moment, uh, that hinder us from connecting with the present moment, which we usually call the hindrances. 
Um, you might also hear the terms uh, defilements or um, uh, some other terms <laughs> that are more, more severe. Uh, so it's difficult to, to notice what's happening in the present moment when we're in the grip of a lot of lethargy, a lot of restlessness, as you've no doubt had the chance to observe <laughs> very keenly for yourselves or when we're in the grip of a lot of obsessive thinking, also probably an experience you've had, caught up in craving, caught up in aversion, caught up in doubt, wonder, and confusion, then it's hard to settle. It's hard to settle into contact with the present moment, with the present moment's reality. Not impossible, but harder. (laughs) So they're called hindrances, not roadblocks. So the role of right mindfulness then is to notice what's happening in the present moment once we do come into contact with it, to to remind us to uh, notice, to be aware of what's going on in the mind and body. And the role of, of skillful concentration is to help to make our awareness clearer, to help to make it stronger, more penetrating, so that we can gradually see more and more deeply, you know, what are the deeper truths of the present moment? Where is that insight that we're, that we're seeking? So concentration in itself without sufficient mindfulness is not going to get us through the door. Uh, also mindfulness without sufficient concentration is not going to get us through the door. And if we're not applying this kind of steady, balanced effort that we keep talking about, then we're just not really going to get anywhere. And I say um, sufficient here, sufficient mindfulness, sufficient concentration, because really it's impossible to develop either of those in isolation. So in order to be mindful, there has to be enough concentration to, to focus on what we're being mindful of. And in order to concentrate, we need enough mindfulness to connect with whatever it is we're trying to concentrate on. So really, they don't develop independently. They're very interwoven. Bhante Gunaratna, um, affectionately known as Bhante G, uh, the author of Mindfulness in Plain English, if you've read it, this classic of, of this style of practice, of insight practice, um, he ends every meditation session that he leads with this little catchphrase, which is, there is no concentration without wisdom, no wisdom without concentration. One who has both concentration and wisdom is close to peace and emancipation. It's a nice little, like, one-verse Dharma talk. (laughs) That pretty much says it all. Gets right at the heart of this practice, of what we're doing, developing this partnership between uh, the clear seeing that comes with mindfulness, which, when applied with um, effort and concentration, will take us through that door of insight to greater peace and greater happiness. The commentaries have a kind of poetic metaphor for this relationship that goes like this. It says, suppose three children go to a park to play. While walking along, they see a tree with flowering tops and decide they want to gather some flowers. But the flowers are beyond the reach of even the tallest child. So one of the friends gets down on their hands and knees and offers their back to serve as a step stool. Then the tallest child climbs up, but they're not very stable in that position on their friend's back. So they're hesitant to actually reach their arm out and pluck the flower. So then the third child comes over and stands next to them and offers their shoulder for support to steady the tall child. 
So then the tall child, standing on the back of their friend and studied by their other friend, can finally reach up and gather the flowers. This metaphor always makes me think of the um, giant native magnolia trees that we have in my, the area where I live around Washington, D.C., and especially where my, some of my family's from down in Virginia. Um, they're these, these big, beautiful uh, evergreen trees with these gigantic leaves and, and really big flowers, kind of the size of dinner plates that put out. If you've ever been around one of these magnolia trees, they put out just this amazing um, scent when they're, when they're blooming that really permeates the whole vicinity. Um, but they tend to, do tend to be up high in the tree. <laughs> so usually, uh, you know, when you're a child walking underneath them, the only way that you really know they're there is you can smell them. They smell great. So I do have memories as, of a child as going through various machinations like this <laughs> of my friends, trying to get up and get at and, and pluck these magnificent flowers. And with some teamwork, you know, we could sometimes pull it off. This is a teaching related to skillful effort that I've always loved, the imagery of this. On one occasion, a certain deva of stunning beauty appeared before the Buddha, illuminating all around them. They paid homage to the Buddha, stood to one side, and said, Tell me, Venerable One, how you crossed over the flood. To which the Buddha replied, By not stopping and by not struggling, friend, I crossed over the flood. But how is it, asked the deva, that by not stopping and not struggling, you were able to cross over the flood? The Buddha said, when I stopped, I sank. But when I struggled, I was spun about. In this way, friend, by not stopping and not struggling, I crossed the flood. To which the deva replied, at long last, I see a being who is fully unbound, who by not stopping and not struggling has crossed over the entanglements of the world. Then, after paying homage again to the Buddha, the deva vanished right there and then. So not struggling and not stopping. And that also in itself <laughs> is a whole Dharma, Dharma teaching. Not struggling and not stopping. It's a, that's a phrase I use to encourage myself a lot when I, when I am struggling or I'm stopping. <coughs> kind of a moder- modern commentary on this might... Uh, that comes from my own life is the experience of watching my children learn how to swim. (laughs) So uh, each of my children is on a different side of that line right now. So my younger one is just in the process of learning how to swim, taking his first swim classes. And, you know, he loves when an adult will get in the pool with him and hold him up and kind of float him around, you know, where he he doesn't have to do anything. He's just going to free ride, you know. (laughs) But if you take that hand away, you know, he sinks like a stone still. (laughs) Or if you tell them, okay, now you, you, you learned in class how to move your arms, how to kick your legs, you know, go for it. You know, then, he's, then there's a lot of like crazy flailing and, you know, again, he, not so effective. <laughs> Whereas my daughter, who's a little bit older, has, has become quite a proficient swimmer at this point. Um, you know, she's not Katie Ledecky, but she can kind of, you know, if she were to, God forbid, fall off a pier or something, you know, she can get herself to the edge of the water, we hope, just by doing kind of a basic, competent front crawl, you know. She's she's water safe now. So she's learned how to apply that kind of steady, you know, just steady, solid, purposeful effort to get across, get across the water. 
So, you know, not all of us are going to be world-class swimmers and not all of us are going to be world-class meditators. Not all of us are going to be the Katie Ledecky meditators (laughs) of the world. (laughs) You know, some of us will be. And thank goodness for that, right? Because we need people to guide us. But for most of us, just being able to do kind of a basic, competent front crawl is actually enough. (laughs) That's good enough, which I also take great comfort in that. But, um, you know, finding that particular quantity and quality of effort that's going to be effective uh, for the practice can take some time. It takes some trial and error. I remember seeing a great cartoon uh, there was also great teaching <laughs> years ago um, when I first started practice. It's like one of those ones where the, the guy's climbing up the mountain to get to the teacher, you know, and he gets up to the, the guru on the top of the mountain. He says, tell me the secret of happiness. And the guru says, uh, good judgment. And then he says, how do I learn good judgment? And the teacher says, bad judgment. <laughs> This is applicable to so many things, right? <laughs> but to our Dharma practice as well. You know, unfortunately, we tend to, to need to find out or to, to find where that balance of effort is through a, quite a bit of trial and error and often repeatedly. You know, so we may find it and then kind of lose it and things change and you know, we find it again and we lose it again and kind of like that. The distinguishing characteristic of skillful effort is that it's purposeful. This is always how it's described in the, the texts, in the, in the old texts, in the traditional teachings. So it's not described particularly in the, in the quality of the effort directly, but in the purpose of the effort and what it accomplishes, which I, I find that interesting. So the Buddha makes it very clear that uh, skillful effort is that kind of effort that we can apply to create a wholesome environment in the mind, a wholesome environment in the mind. And the Buddha spelled this out in his typically very clear and thorough style. So he said, uh, if there's nothing unwholesome in the mind, nothing particularly unwholesome in the mind at any particular moment, apply effort such that nothing unwholesome arises. If there is something unwholesome in the mind, then apply effort such that it will either move along or transform into something wholesome. If there's nothing wholesome in the mind, nothing particularly you know, good going on in the mind, then invite it in, arouse it, apply effort to try to cultivate something wholesome. And if there is something wholesome in the mind already, then nurture it, try to sustain it, try to cultivate it. So that kind of covers all the fronts, right? <laughs> covers all the bases. He was very thorough. But how do we actually go about doing this? So if if there's nothing unwholesome in the mind, how do we keep it from entering in? And not too surprisingly, uh, the answer that he gave was mindfulness. Through mindfulness. Mindfulness has this protective quality that we've talked about. We've talked about guarding the sense doors. So when, there's, uh, when we're remembering to be present, when we're me- remembering to be in the present moment, that it's much harder for things to uh, slip past the radar, right? It's much harder for those unwholesome thoughts, feelings to take hold because we're on the lookout for them. If they do arise, then they arise in a space of mindfulness. And as soon as mindfulness is present, the environment in the mind is wholesome, believe it or not. <laughs> it's, it's much better to have something unwholesome going on in the mind and know it than to not know it, 
You know, it's, the, it's those moments of unconscious, unwholesome thoughts and feelings that are conditioning more of those moments and also driving us to act them out in ways that may be harmful. So it's, it's much more painful but much uh, healthier uh, to actually see <laughs> the unwholesome things going on in our mind. There's a, this question this, that came up this morning about um, noticing that something wasn't happening. You know, so um, there may be times when we may become aware, you know, especially if there's been a lot of unwholesome things coming up in the mind, we may have one, some period, sitting, walking, doing whatever, where we notice, hey, that's not going on. All that reactivity that I was having in that last sitting, it's just, it's not here anymore. <laughs> so it's really important to notice that. So this is part of the instructions the Buddha gave for this practice. Notice when there's not something unwholesome going on because that helps us to get familiar with what that feels like and to cultivate that quality, that environment of mind. If we don't notice it, then we can't cultivate it. So pay, keep, pay attention, you know, keep, keep uh, an eye out for those times when something that's been really, um, you know, afflicting us is just not there. We can notice that too. If there is something unwholesome going on in the mind, then skillful effort will uh, clear it out, move it along, or transform our relationship to it. And uh, this is where most of us feel like we're doing most of our work (laughs) in the early days of the retreat, in the early days, years, decades of our practice, um, is working with the unwholesome things that that are there that we notice. And what the heck do we do with them? (laughs) But you guys already know the answer to that, right? Mindfulness. If this was a a multiple choice test, I think you all would do pretty well on it. (laughs) So we we see a lot how that works, right? Or or hopefully as the days of the retreat go on, as we move along in our practice, we see more and more how that works. How there, you know, as I was just saying, there really is a different climate in the mind when there's awareness of what's happening. And things may not change in the way that we want them to, but there's, there's different things happening when we see the unwholesomeness that's going on in the mind. There's, there's learning that can happen. There's growth that can happen out of that, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> Mindfulness is kind of like um, the philosopher's stone, you know, in, in, in ancient mythology that was said to be able to turn base metals into gold. So that, that obsessive thought that um, unrelenting pain, you know, the, the tedious boredom, whatever it is that is driving us crazy, if we, if we can greet it as a teacher and, and bow to it and see what it has to tell us, then it can be a source of liberation. It can be a source of awakening and insight. So with skillful effort, we learn to transform that relationship, how we're relating to the difficult things that come up which obviously takes a lot of practice. Then we have the case where there isn't anything wholesome in the mind. So invite it in. And there's various ways to do this. The the loving-kindness practice that we're doing is actually one of the traditional ways of doing this. That's one of the reasons that we offer that practice. There's um, a whole variety of practices like that of... uh, wholesome reflections uh, on the loving-kindness, compassion, equanimity, sympathetic joy, reflections on the virtues of the teachings, reflections on all sorts of things. The Buddha actually um, encouraged us to use our thinking mind in a skillful way to actually promote a wholesome environment in the mind. 
you know, much better to be, um, you know, sitting and reading the metta chant on our sheet than to be sitting and going over our to-do list for the 200th time, you know. It, it is better to have uh, wholesome thoughts injected in there, and we have a choice about that. We can do that. But for the purposes of this retreat, <laughs> the way in which we invite in uh, wholesome states is mindfulness. Right? <laughs> so just through that power of mindfulness, mindfulness is said to um, kind of come with a whole posse of wholesome friends. That, that when mindfulness is present in the mind, it's much easier for all of the other wholesome qualities of mind to come in. Uh, patience, uh, resolve, um, kindness, you know, just a whole troop of them. And you may start to notice this as mindfulness gets stronger, there starts to be other wholesome qualities there as well. So just simply through the power of mindfulness, we're, we're house cleaning. You know, it cle- clears out the mind. It's said to be a, a purification process. We're clearing out the circuits. And then we have the case where if something uh, wholesome is already present in the mind and we notice it, then to really nurture it and sustain it. And more and more as the days of the retreat go on, you might actually begin to notice more wholesome mental states, (laughs) more wholesome things happening in the mind. So it's important to notice these um, because the way in which we uh, cultivate and encourage wholesome mental states is mindfulness. (laughs) Again, like, um, if we don't see them, then we can't nurture them, you know. But the more that we notice, oh, hey, there was a moment of calm. (laughs) There was a moment of clarity. There was a moment of genuine compassion, or whatever it is. The more we notice those moments, that actually strengthens them because we're becoming familiar with what those states feel like and that reinforces them. It creates this positive feedback loop. You know, when we're only noticing the unpleasant, painful, negative things that are coming up in the mind, then that's where we're giving all our attention. There's not a chance for the wholesome things to take root as much. So we really have to keep an eye out for keeping our attention balanced because what can happen is... We pay a lot of attention while the big storms are going on, while there's all the pain in the body, all the the turmoil in the mind. And then when things get a little easier, when the wholesome factors actually get stronger, then, you know, it's like we just kind of sit back and space out or chill out or whatever until things get hard again, (laughs) which is natural. That's a natural dynamic when we first start. Um, And many of you are actually reporting on this, um, that there's starting to be more calm, (laughs) It's it's so funny, our relationship to calm. Like, this is a particularly um, helpful one to start to notice um, during the retreat because it, for most of us, we will get calmer while we're here. But when calm first starts arising, very often it feels like there's a void. It feels like there's nothing happening, right? Things just kind of get quiet and there's not a lot going on and there can be this feeling of, okay, this is boring, <laughs> <laughs> or this, or it can actually, there can actually be a feeling of what's wrong. You know, why is nothing happening? You know, am I doing something wrong? Do I need to, to manufacture something or look for something? Um, some of us might actually be quite freaked out by calm <laughs> because it's such an alien experience. So at the time when it seems like things are settling down and there's not so much of a storm going on, 
have a look around, you know, survey the mental terrain. Maybe there's calm, maybe there's some equanimity, maybe there's some joy, you know, maybe there's some peace. Um, We have to, you know, at a certain point bring all of those wholesome qualities into our awareness. And that's how they strengthen, so that there starts to be a landmark on our mental map that's calm. There starts to be a landmark on our mental map that's equanimity. And that's how they grow and get stronger. Those start to be part of what's on the menu as we get more familiar with them. If we don't see them, we can't add them to the menu. So basically, skillful effort is the effort that we make to be mindful, which accomplishes all four of these tasks that the Buddha set in relation to skillful effort. The the effort to be mindful clears the field for clear seeing and insight. And it quiets down the hindrances, you know, not completely at first, but a little bit, enough so that there start to be some spaces to connect more fully with the present moment, to experience the present moment more fully without so much hindering, without so much interference. The Buddha said, cultivate the good. It is possible. If it were not possible, I would not ask. So cultivate what is good. Abandon the unwholesome. It is possible. If it were not possible, I would not ask. So abandon the unwholesome. I just love <laughs> how, how practical uh, these teachings are, and the, the, this voice of the Buddha that comes through. You know, he's so pragmatic. You know, he solved his problem. He found deep peace, um, and he went on to teach it. But he says, you know, if it weren't possible for you too, I wouldn't ask you to do it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't bother. But it is possible. So have a go at it. It's daunting if we think in terms of completely eradicating unwholesome thoughts and emotions from our minds for the rest of our lives, you know, or even for the rest of just a single sitting, or even just for the rest of a single breath. <laughs> you know, if we project that project out into the future in that way, it becomes really overwhelming. And it's not a helpful way to approach practice. You know, our, our practice doesn't unfold that way. Our life doesn't unfold that way. It unfolds one moment at a time. So we don't cultivate freedom or experience it um, in these big chunks of time, you know, the rest of the sitting, the rest of this year, the rest of my life, Um, but just in each moment as it comes. And that we can do. We can deal just with the moment that's in front of us, make our best effort. And doing that is what we call skillful effort. Skillful effort also has this act, this aspect of um, perseverance. So this kind of energy or effort that is well-paced and measured, you know, as we've been saying, not to sprint, but to, to marathon. So we can think of effort also as having this um, courageous aspect, uh, persistence, steadfastness. I like this, this aspect of it, of steadfastness the ability to stand firm in the face of whatever is arising in our minds. And the, um, the role model for us in this is, is the Buddha in the posture that we see him here um, in front of us on the night of his enlightenment. You know, this is the posture that uh, demonstrates his steadfastness, his courageous effort, his perseverance. 
So he, you know, as the story goes, sat down under the Bodhi tree, determined to make his final uh, stand against suffering. And the armies of Mara came and attacked him. Mara brought everything that they had, uh, you know, lust, greed, fear, anger, (laughs) self-doubt. The last frontier. But with this great kind of steadfast effort, skillful effort, the Buddha just sat his ground, just stood his ground, just kept his place. You know, he didn't kind of lash out, fight back, you know, get into struggles with Mara and his armies, but he just simply stood his ground and touched the earth and said, this is my place. I have a right to be here. I have a right to awaken. And I'm not moving. You're not budging me. And so he did. But we all know that it takes a great effort to be still in the face of everything that comes up in the mind and the body. It's really hard work. But over time, we will cultivate this quality more and more, the ability to uh, mobilize what our teacher Sayadaw Pandita called uh, spiritual stamina. Spiritual stamina. That ability to stand our ground, to keep our seat, to stay steadfast in the face of everything that ultimately we have to face in the course of this practice. When our, ed- when our effort becomes too aggressive, too fierce, uh, too combative, that's what the Buddha meant by struggling, struggling in the stream, getting carried away by the, the current. This is a quote from um, the Manual of Insight, which has recently been published, translated from Mahasi Sayada, one of the great founding uh, ancestors of this tradition. He said, when energy is excessive, one strives too much. The mind cannot become well concentrated and it will just be restless. Because of this restlessness, one will not be able to be clearly aware of arising experiences. In this way, excessive effort results in weak concentration and unclear experience and practice. This is excessive effort that interferes with practice. So some of us may be able to relate to this. You know, when there's that strong striving, overt efforting, it actually unsettles the mind. It's counterproductive. It has the effect of stirring up the energy rather than letting it settle. So if we get into, this, into a place where we feel like the meditation is just exhausting, we're getting burnt out, you know, we just can't face another sitting, we just can't face another walking, you know, it's four o'clock and I've, no, I've just got to go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of a feeling. We've all been there. Um, that's, that's usually a, a, an indicator of over-efforting. We're working too hard. You know, we don't need to work that hard. It shouldn't be exhausting. It doesn't need to be exhausting. Skillful effort is gentle but persistent. Gentle but steady. It really doesn't take that much effort to meet a single moment with awareness. The, the trick is that we need to mobilize that tiny amount of effort over and over and over and over and over again in a continuous stream, as continuous as possible. I think of the quality of effort as um, kind of similar to a, a butterfly landing on a flower, if you can get that image in your head. Uh, near where we live, there's a place, a botanic garden, where they do one of these things where they import a bunch of exotic butterflies and cocoons and things, and then um, 
release them into the conservatory. So there's this big glass room, probably about this size, filled with just like, I don't know, probably thousands of butterflies. There's butterflies everywhere. If you just go in there and stand, they'll they'll land on you (laughs) if you're still. It's really neat. Um, but if you watch them, you know, they're, they're just so delicate. There's hardly anything to a butterfly. You know, it's one of these really uh, ephemeral creatures. And you'll just see them, you know, they, they waft along and then plop. They're just going to you know, land on their flower or their leaf or wherever they're headed for whatever butterfly reason that they have <laughs> on you sometimes. Um, but it's just the, the, you know, it's hardly any effort to just land. Just a tiny little tap of the two little feet of the butterfly. <laughs> <laughs> but so I, that's the image that I carry um, to remind me of the quality of skillful effort. That's, it really doesn't take any more than that to just land on this moment of the abdomen moving, you know, this moment of the foot touching the ground, this moment of uh, burning, searing pain in our shoulder. <laughs> you know? it, it takes such light effort. And if we're making more effort than that, then it's going to be hard to sustain because we're going to get worn out. So when we practice in this way, making just this very light effort, but in a sustained way, then the meditation will start to feel much more easeful, much more relaxed, much more delightful, actually. Um, I feel like the dining room here is um, also a sacred space, (laughs) just like the meditation hall is, um, because I bet there have been at least as many moments of deep insight in the dining room as in here. Because that's where we relax a little bit, right? That's where we let off the, the pedal a little bit. And the, the controlling faculties, the spiritual faculties, can actually come into balance, not being so leaning forward, not being so amped up. And things can actually fall into place, and we can see clearly. Some of you may have had moments like that uh, in the dining hall or, or walking outside, places other than here. <laughs> because here tends to be where we're working too hard. Of course, the caveat for that is, you know, by that t- the time we come to that place where we relax a li- little bit, we've laid a lot of groundwork, right, through all of the, the work, the hard work that we've done up until that point. So it is also possible, you know, it's possible to be working too hard. It's also possible to be, I don't want to say working too little, but not working in quite the right way in terms of... Um, Sustained effort. So this is what the Buddha meant by um, stopping. You know, he could. He, he said he didn't struggle and he didn't stop. So he didn't over-effort. He didn't, you know, put strive too much and get caught up in the eddies. But he also didn't just stop and take breaks and get swept away by the current. So if you know, if we're, if we're mindful for a few moments or we're mindful to sit for a sitting and then we slack off <laughs> and stop making that sustained effort. Um, then we can't really experientially get the the truth, the deeper truths that we're looking for, because we're just not paying attention for long enough. It's said that the reason that we don't all immediately uh, have insight and get enlightened (laughs) is that our awareness is not continuous enough. So the continuity of awareness is the key. So if you think about it, we're mindful for a couple moments and then not for a couple moments. So this can happen even just on a, a very micro scale then we don't get that, oh, everything is continuously changing. We have to actually really be there in the flow of what's really happening in the present moment to get that, to see that directly. 
So the, the continuity is really key, not stopping, not struggling, not stopping. So if we think about it, our effort in each moment has to be really gentle and light, or it won't be sustainable. And our effort from moment to moment has to be steady and sustained in order for it to be effective, in order for it to give rise to insight. And over time we'll get familiar, more familiar, with what that balanced steady effort feels like. Um, which, as I mentioned, is actually quite delightful when we hit that sweet spot where we're not too tight, we're not too slack, everything's nice and balanced, then we feel um, that wonderful uh, spiritual joy, piti, of being in the flow of the moment, being being in contact with reality, so that it becomes more and more self-sustaining, that kind of effort. It becomes more instinctive, more intuitive, and it stops seeming like such a big chore, such a big project to do the practice. Eventually, as momentum builds, we might come to a place of what's called effortless effort, where it really feels like we're not doing anything at all. (laughs) In fact, the effort's still chugging along, but it's just become like a perpetual motion machine. It's become self-sustaining. So we have to make that initial effort. It's kind of like breaking free from gravity. But then once we get up up into orbit, it just carries itself and we can just surrender to the process. In the time of the Buddha, there was a young man named Sona, who was the son of a very wealthy businessman, and raised in great ease and luxury. And he had a great love of music, which his family uh, encouraged, and he was quite accomplished on the lute, kind of an early stringed instrument, which he devoted a lot of time to. And he did hardly any physical work for himself. There were servants to attend to everything. He hardly even walked anywhere. (laughs) He had a sedan chair and was carried everywhere. Um, So his skin was very delicate and soft. It's that he walked so little that he even had hair on the soles of his feet. (laughs) The hairs hadn't even been worn off from the bottom of his feet. He used them so little. And uh, King Bimbasara (laughs) was a great monarch in that area of the time actually called him on one occasion in front to examine his feet and see these famous hairy feet. (laughs) But one day, as as happened in those times, uh, Sona went to listen to a talk by the Buddha who was in the area. And uh, the Buddha was speaking about the happiness experienced from non-attachment to worldly desires. And Sona was very inspired by this and decided to ordain and become a monk. And he was taught sitting meditation and walking meditation, just as we do here. And being an enthusiastic young man, uh, went at it with great gusto, spending many hours in walking meditation, which his tender feet were not adapted for, not prepared for. But he persevered, um, but eventually his feet were just covered in bleeding blisters, and he was in terrible agony and couldn't walk anymore. And he was very disappointed, he was very discouraged, he had been very sincere in his aspiration, Um, but he started to have thoughts to the effect that, you know, I've tried really hard, but I haven't gotten anywhere, and maybe it's just better for me to return home and use the the resources and the privilege that I have to support others that are better better suited (laughs) to this kind of practice. 
And when the Buddha heard about this uh, line of thinking <laughs> that Sona was engaging in, he went to visit Sona and said to him, I, I heard that you're not getting good results from your practice. If I explain the source of your difficulty, would you stay on as a monk and try again? And Sona perked up and said that he would. So the Buddha said, Tell me, Sona, when you used to play the lute, did you produce good music when the strings were well-tuned, neither too tight nor too loose? I did, said Sona. What happened when the strings were too tightly wound up? I could not produce any sound, said Sona. And what happened when the strings were too slack? I could not produce good sound at all, replied Sona. Just so, Sona, said the Buddha. You have been straining too hard in your meditation. Just do it in a relaxed way, but without being slack, and you will experience a good result. Sona got the message. He tried it again. (laughs) It was a little bit more easygoing. And uh, relatively soon, he became fully enlightened. (laughs) And everyone lived happily ever after. So we learn little by little to mobilize this kind of skillful effort that's balanced, not too hard, not striving too hard, not slacking off, but just being gently continuous. And then that quality of effort can work along with the mindfulness, the concentration that we're building in order to get us through the door of insight. We've been talking uh, throughout the retreat about mindfulness, and we'll continue to. Um, but just it's it's kind of a funny thing. Many of you have probably heard me uh, talk about my first encounter with Sayada Upandita, my first in- practice interview with him. So I had um, done a certain amount of practice. I think I'd probably done a three-month retreat and some shorter retreats by then before I had my first retreat with Sayada Upandita. And I kind of thought I knew what mindfulness was. Um, I was still learning, definitely. But I kind of thought I knew what the basic practice was. But I went in to see Sayadaw Pandita um, for for my first practice interview. And people had warned me that he was a fairly demanding and fierce teacher. And I had to report very carefully. There's a very specific way that he wants you to report your meditative experiences. And I had been coached on this by some of my Dharma friends that had practiced with him. So I went in for my first interview with him. And I started to uh, report on my experience in the way that I thought uh, he expected the, in the way I thought I was supposed to, but really it was coming from a totally intellectual headspace. You know, <laughs> it was like not actually based on my real experience at all. It was it was totally just constructed thought, and I'm sure he had me pegged from the moment I walked in the door. <laughs> but I came in, you know, I, I paid respects the way you do traditionally, and sat and started to report, and it went through the translator. And I said a few things, and he didn't let me get very far, just a few sentences, I think, before he held up his hand. He speaks just a little bit, he spoke just a little bit of English. He said, stop, <laughs> directly to me, not through the translator. <laughs> and so I stopped, and um, so then he spoke through the translator again. He said, touch your nose. I said, turned to the translator, I said, what? <laughs> he came back, touch your nose. So I touched my nose, what do you do? <laughs> And Sayadaw said, what do you feel? 
I didn't know what I felt. <laughs> you know, I was at a real loss. And he saw me sitting there, so he kind of prompted me a little bit. He said, can you feel uh, touching? So I checked in. Yeah, I can feel, yeah, I can feel touching. <laughs> I started to take my hand down. He said, no, no, put your hand back up. <laughs> can you feel warmth? So I checked. Could I feel warmth? Yeah, I could feel warmth. So he said, okay, what else? So I checked. I could feel, you know, I told him just a few things I could feel. I could feel tingling. You know, I could feel a little bit of pressure. Just a few things like that. So he said, okay, good. Continue to practice this way. And he rang the bell and that was that. <laughs> but that was actually, I share this story a lot because that was actually my first real inkling of, oh, it's not really what I thought it was. It's much simpler. You know, I had actually been confusing, you know, I hadn't been totally off base, but I had been confusing just that simple quality of mindfulness with strong concentration primarily. You know, I felt like that if I wasn't paying attention in a very focused, very clear, very penetrating way, I wasn't being mindful. I thought that that's what the mindfulness was. And this was my first little opening that, oh, it's really much simpler than that. It's just simply knowing, you know, the touch of the body on the cushion, you know, the touch of the air on the face, you know, the, the, the burning in the neck, <laughs> the, the thought going through the mind. Then that's all there is to it. It's really so simple. So mindfulness just keeps reminding us pay attention to the present moment. You know, as we've mentioned already, it's that reminding, that remembering to just be here, just be here. So it turns out that if we just remember to be here, then we'll naturally notice what's happening. You know, the noticing happens anyway. We don't have to do anything to notice. If we're here, if we're not distracted, if we're not lost in thought, then the noticing just happens automatically. That's the function of awareness, is to notice what's happening. So it takes almost no effort (laughs) to notice. It just takes a little bit of effort to remember, to allow noticing to happen. Sometimes people um, will ask questions along the lines of, um, well, I was sitting and, uh, um, you know, like a strong pain arose in my knee. And should I pay attention to that? And it's kind of a moot question if you think about it. (laughs) You've already paid attention to it. Awareness is already picked up on it. You know, now it's time for the next thing. <laughs> you know, so we, we really can just settle back and let awareness do its thing. It's doing it anyway. You know, if we're awake, if we're present, then awareness is functioning. So we really don't need to, to push and force the awareness to notice. The, the awareness will notice anyway. I love this teaching from Tangpulu Sayada. It's called, What Makes a Meditation? When you know you're feeling greed, you're no longer in ignorance, but possess knowledge. If you know that you are angry and feel hatred, you're no longer in ignorance, but possess knowledge. When you know that you're confused, that knowing becomes knowledge, and it is a meditation. Even if you become aware of the feeling, I don't want to meditate, that means that you have the understanding that you don't want to meditate. Since you know that you do not want to meditate, that knowing becomes the meditation, the mindfulness and awareness that you know what you don't want to do. There's no escape. 
So right effort clears away distractions. It paves the way for mindfulness to do its thing. Then mindfulness can direct our awareness to the present moment where it needs to be. And finally, the last bhavana factor, the last uh, meditative factor of concentration can come in and kind of close the deal, seal the deal. Concentration is said to be like the tall child that can then reach out and grab the flower. Um, by giving that extra oomph to our awareness, giving it an extra power, an extra penetration that's necessary to really get through to the deeper truths. The concentration in and of itself is a fairly pedestrian quality of mind. Um, it's that ability to, to focus the mind and to filter out distractions, um, which is actually present in every moment of consciousness. Uh, it has to be, or we wouldn't be able to function. <laughs> So at any given time, we've got just scads of (laughs) sensory stimulation coming in through our nervous system, through these incredibly sensitive nervous systems we have. So concentration (laughs) is just that that factor of mind that picks and chooses. Okay, this is what I'm going to attend to, and that's not important. You know, and now this over here, and not that. It's that discriminating quality of mind that picks and chooses where to, to place the attention so that we can actually function. It's actually impossible to pay attention to everything at once. You know, we have to pick and choose how to navigate through the world. And it's also, concentration is said to be an ethically neutral quality of mind. So, you know, it takes a lot of concentration <laughs> to do some of the really awful things that human <laughs> beings do in the world. So it can be used, the power of concentration can be used for, for good or for evil. In its role as a factor in our meditation, though, we do want to strengthen our concentration beyond just the everyday level. That's a lot of what we're doing here. And to to do that in cooperation with the effort and mindfulness. And building concentration is really a simple matter of repetition. As some of you that have done kind of more focused concentration practice know. So it's extremely analogous to weightlifting a subject which I don't actually know a whole lot about. <laughs> but I've done enough to, to know that you know, if you take a barbell and you lift it up and down like this enough times, this muscle is going to get stronger. Right? That's just the nature of the body. And if, then if you stop doing that, set the barbell down, don't pick it up for another two months, this muscle is going to get weaker. So it's the same exact dynamic with concentration. You know, so we... Uh, come back to the breath, or we come back to um, hearing, or whatever we're using as an anchoring experience uh, over and over and over again, then concentration will grow. That mental muscle that's able to focus on a particular experience gets stronger. And then if we stop doing that practice, stop coming back over and over again to that particular experience, then that mental muscle kind of gets weaker, falls out of use. So, so that's the nature of the, the mind, of how we use the mind. In mindfulness meditation, like we're doing here, you know, we've started off with a, a bit of an emphasis on the breath or, or a single focus just to steady the mind initially. But ultimately, what we're concentrating on is actually the present moment itself. So that's what we're coming back to over and over and over again, is the present moment, kind of independent of what are, whatever might be in the present moment. So the breath might be in the present moment, but it might also be something else, some other physical sensation, a thought, something we're hearing. But we keep coming back over and over again to the present moment. Um, this way of cultivating concentration is sometimes called momentary concentration because we're concentrating on 
in the present moment. But uh, regardless of how you know we're cultivating concentration or what we're coming back to, uh, it matters how we come back. <coughs> so this is also analogous to weightlifting. So if we've got this heavy barbell in our hand and we don't know how to use it properly, or we're not being careful enough, we can actually cause ourselves damage. We can cause ourselves harm instead of becoming stronger. And it's the same thing with steadying the mind by coming back over and over and over again to whatever we're coming back to. Um, it matters how we do it. It, ma- it matters how we return. So we can actually injure ourselves psychically if we're coming back over and over again with an attitude of striving or an attitude of self-judgment or an attitude of dissatisfaction you know, the, that, that has unintended consequences. <laughs> I'm speaking from experience here, we can inadvertently be strengthening the tendency towards uh, striving, towards self-judgment, towards dissatisfaction, if we're, if we're coming back every time over and over again with those qualities. So we really want to be aware of the quality with which we're returning to the present moment. And, you know, we might be able to um, do that with greater kindness, with greater gentleness, with greater equanimity, or not. But if we can't, then we can be mindful of it. <laughs> and that will also protect us. That protective quality of mindfulness will, will um, guard us from those unintended consequences when self-judgment or striving or over-efforting are arising. So it's a real turning point in practice when we come to realize that um, this path isn't about having a pleasant meditation. Is anybody here for pleasant meditation? (laughs) Mostly that's what we come here for. (laughs) Which is natural. It's perfectly natural. Um, But it is a real turning point when we start to get, you know, that, that that's not actually what it's about. That that's not actually uh, the direction that this path is leading in. It's not about having a pleasant meditation or walking around in perpetual bliss or attaining some kind of peak experience. That's not actually what lies on the other side of the door. But instead that it's about wisdom, about understanding. That's what mobilizing these factors leads us to. That's what's on the other side of the door is a greater understanding of what it means to be human what it means to be this human, what it means to be any human, what it means to live in this world. This realization is actually such a turning point um, that it has a formal name in the traditional teachings. It's called the realization of what is and what is not the path. The realization of what is and what is not the path. So actually the most important feature of growing concentration that we uh, need to start to pick up on is is that fading of the hindrances. As concentration grows, the mind becomes more collected, more steadying, uh, more steady. And the distractions of the hindrances are uh, pushed out. They can't coexist with the, the momentum of the concentration, the mindfulness, the skillful effort. And we tend to experience this as just simply it starts to become easier. 
to stay in the present moment. It's not usually anything so dramatic, but it just we might have that feeling that we're not constantly being pulled away by wandering thoughts. We're not constantly dozing off or wanting to check the watch. We, feel, we start to have a feeling that it's just okay to be here, to be here now and just be in the present moment with things as they are. We might start to have thoughts like, you know, why was this so hard before? You know, this is really, you know, no big deal. Just to sit here, be present, be with what is. So it doesn't have to be a dramatic shift, but it is a, a definite shift in the mind state. And this is really the point at which insight starts to become accessible when we've cultivated these three qualities to the point where we're just okay with being here in the present moment as it is for some amount of time. may only be a breath, maybe a few breaths. That's all it takes. Then we can begin to pick up on aspects of reality that we may not have seen before. Not because we're having a lot of... uh, particularly pleasant experiences, not because we're bathed in bliss, but just from the, that very simple ability to be able to set, settle into the present moment and connect with what's actually happening. That's when we can you know, unlock the lock, you know, turn the latch, and push the door open. So let's sit for a moment. There is no concentration without wisdom, no wisdom without concentration. One who is both concentration and wisdom is close to peace and emancipation. So we'll see you back here at 9 o'clock to chant and close the day together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.